All right, the rest of us, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This week and next week will be introductory messages to this uh, really big book of our New Testament, 16 chapters uh, filled with all kinds of teaching concerning the gospel and uh, how that works its way out in our lives. Uh, so this is a big journey that we are undertaking now. And you'll hear me say, turn to Romans, uh, over and over and over again now for uh, quite some time. And um, in, you know, in distinction from what we did with Matthew, where we kind of took that book in a bigger picture approach with the exception of the two major teaching sections there, Sermon on the Mount and uh, the Olivet Discourse, we slowed down a little bit. In the main, taking one to two weeks per chapter. But in Paul's letter to the Romans, it gives itself more for detailed study and exposition. And so uh, that's what we're going to do. And I think it is a wonderful complement and supplement to the Gospel of Matthew as he's going to take what we saw Jesus do uh, there in Matthew's Gospel, and he's going to explain it to us in far greater detail. And it's really how God chose to uh, reveal his salvation plan for us is in stages. And if you think about the Gospels, the way your New Testament is formed in the English Bible, you have those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those describe to you the Of course, the life and the teaching, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there isn't a lot of explanation of what's going on. You you see what's happening, but there isn't a a lot of detail in explaining what was happening. And Jesus in that upper room, uh, before he was betrayed and before he was turned over the cross, he taught the disciples that the Spirit would come and that the Spirit would lead them into all truth and guide them. And that was first and foremost a promise of those early apostles, that all of a sudden they would be able to see now things that he hadn't had time to explain to them and that they weren't ready to see yet. And you see that unfolded in letters like uh, Romans by the Apostle Paul and the other places of the New Testament that really work out for us what was happening in Jesus' life and, and death and resurrection. And we at CBC, of course, we believe and teach that all of the Bible is important and is equal in the sense that we say all of Scripture, every part of it, every word and phrase, just as Jesus taught us right down to the little, right, the, the marks on the Hebrew letters or the smallest letter of the, the Greek alphabet, right, just those Uh, every little part of the Scripture comes from God and is important in that sense and is equal in that sense. But I don't think many people would argue with the premise that there are portions of the Bible that are especially critical for Christian people to understand. In that sense, you could say they're more important to understand. To really... Uh, spend some time with it, right? And to study in what is being taught. And I think Romans is just that kind of section of the Bible that Christians should become very familiar with. It is a central book of the Bible, not just the New Testament, though of course it is, but of the entire 
scriptures. Of all 66 books, it's a central book. It ties together the Old and New Testaments and, and brings together all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament and what God was doing and how he's working that out and, and how it culminates in Jesus Christ and then even works it out into our lives and how we're to live it out in the later part of the book. It is central. It's a very comprehensive presentation of the good news of Jesus and it explains some of the most crucial doctrines of the Bible that I think Christians really need to be familiar with. And not just at a surface level, but I mean have some depth of understanding and what Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, some spiritual wisdom and insight and knowledge into what he's teaching here. Doctrines, the doctrines of salvation and grace and faith and in justification, where we ended off at last week, or righteousness and the central place that has and the finding of God's righteousness through faith in Christ. The book of Romans is important because it answers this question, the, the one question that every human being needs to ask and be able to answer. How can me, how can I, a sinner, be right with God? How can a sinner stand in the presence of God in right relationship to Him? Well, the book of Romans answers that question very clearly. How can we sinners be right with God? So it's a very important book for us to study and give our attention to, to take our time through and uh, get a good grasp on it. We're recommending the resource of... Uh, uh, it's, uh, they're called the Read, Mark, and Learn, I think, or something, a series of books. Anyway, there's one on the book of Romans. Uh, Graham's going to order a bunch of those. If you're interested in that, let him know. And this is a good uh, supplement study just for your own personal time, and it has a little commentary on each section, and it has uh, it's just a paperback about this big, and, and it has questions in there. You can do self-study. I think it's really important for us to be doing this together as a church. And we view it as such, <clears throat> really getting a grasp on the book of Romans. Martin Luther, in his uh, commentary to this book, by the way, this, this was the uh, particular verse in this book, in the first chapter, was used of God to bring him to true saving faith. And, um, but he said this about it, the epistle uh, that is to the Romans is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. I want you to remember that. Eight months, ten months, twelve months into this series. And be a congregation unlike the ones that Paul warns Timothy about in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where he tells Timothy, preach the word because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They just won't put up with it anymore. And I think I'm convinced of the fact that sound teaching is just week upon week exposition of God's word, usually through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible, so that we go through it together and you, we gain better understanding of these portions of Scripture and could even explain them to other people. Maybe that should be the goal, that not only you are being taught from the book of Romans, but that you could teach it to someone else, right? 
That's when you know if any of you have ever had like uh, business classes or other things, they want to make you an expert in whatever topic it is that you're studying. And they say you not only need to know it, but you need to be able to teach this. Whether you're a teacher or not, you need to be able to explain it to other people. That's when you know you have comprehended it. And maybe that should be our goal. And of course, we want this book to be more precious to us and taste better to us, as Martin Luther says, as time goes on. So with that, let's read these first seven verses, this introduction to this letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on this text. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we ask for what Paul desired here for the Roman church in their reading of this letter, that we would receive from you grace and peace, that it would minister to our souls, that we be edified and encouraged and exhorted to live for you, to be devoted to you in our lives. I pray as we embark on this journey now that you would keep us uh, excited about this book and engaged in it, give us spiritual wisdom and understanding. Help me now as I teach that you would, I just pray you'd gift me to do what I by nature cannot do. And so I pray that uh, your spirit would be very prominent in and through me now for, the, for your glory and the benefit of your people that are here now to listen. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. So we refer to Romans as a book of the Bible, but it's really, it's a book of the Bible, true, but it's Uh, First and foremost, a letter. So as we're studying any kind of uh, portion of Scripture, we try to break down what genre it's in, and this, of course, is a letter that was written by Paul to a local church uh, of people just like you and me, just uh, average, everyday sinners who have come to know Jesus Christ by faith and uh, would gather together either all together, or many believe at that time, most likely they were in separate home churches where they would gather and leaders over those separate home churches just because they didn't have church buildings anymore to, or at that point yet to bring in everybody into them. And so, uh, but these were just people like you and me. And like any letter, it has an introduction. And in Paul's day, the introductions were a little different than ours. We might start with saying something like this, uh, Dear Church in Rome, and then go on to the whole 
letter and then at the end say, yours truly, uh, Paul, or something in that effect. But in Paul's day, that wasn't the way they wrote a letter. They started it with their own name. So whoever's writing the letter, the sender would begin. He does here, of course, Paul, and nobody uh, in church history that was taken seriously anyway ever doubted Paul's writing this letter, the authenticity of it, in other words. And Paul was writing to them, and he uh, has some uh, introduction here that is a little longer than most introductions you would have found in other letters, and that would be expected from a man like Paul who is going to utilize every inch of space in his writing to be instructing and encouraging and edifying the people of God with solid truth. So you have that in uh, those verses, and then it's to the addressees, of course, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, and then most letters would have some form of uh, greeting to them and well wishes, and Paul has his form here in the grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we'll get into the details of much of this, uh, those verses, Uh, but really what we're going to do is Uh, This week and next, we're going to uh, look at Paul himself, okay, because he introduces himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I think it's important for us to understand Paul's unique and particular ministry as you're beginning out in a letter. So we're going to talk about Paul. We're going to talk a little bit about his message, the gospel message he proclaims, which really you find uh, find in verses uh, uh, 2 through um, 4. Right? This is the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, and he spends a lot of time in this gospel explaining where that happened. And it was uh, of uh, the gospel concerning his son, verse 3, who was descended from David. We learned all about that in the gospel of Matthew. Descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the, from the dead. Christ Jesus our Lord. So think about where we left off in Matthew last week. Jesus standing before his disciples after the resurrection. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's the idea. So we'll look a little bit at his message and then his mission. Uh, this week, what I want to do is just begin talking about Paul, and I want to do, I want to preach the entire book of Romans in just a few minutes. So just kind of this overall view of the book of Romans, because anytime you study a book of the Bible, it's important to have a, a bigger context in mind before you get into the details. And even then when you're in the details of your studies, it's always important to break back out of that once in a while and look at the big picture again and how it all ties in together. So let's begin with just Paul. Who was Paul? Paul was a missionary. Okay, Paul was a missionary, and we've, we had missionaries up here this morning. We're familiar as American Christians with the concept of a missionary. It's uh, really one who's sent to go somewhere uh, and uh, preach the gospel. And, and uh, by, by the time we're, where we're at now in church history, we have all different kinds of missions out there, all different mission programs. I was with a, with a, a missionary organization for four years, Slavic Gospel Association, and they honed in specifically on Russian-speaking places and peoples in the former Soviet Union and helped churches there. And that, that's just one of thousands and thousands of different types of missions out there and uh, gospel-proclaiming organizations and mission organizations 
Paul was a missionary, and of course he was a unique missionary. He was an apostle, an apostolic missionary. We'll talk more about the importance of that next week and the the, uh, unique authority that that carried with it. But he was a missionary. As a matter of fact, if you turn to chapter 15, it helps a lot with the context of both Paul and why he's even writing to this church in the first place. Okay, look at chapter 15 and verse... 20. As a missionary, he says this, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, as it is written, and here he quotes from Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul was what we might refer to as a pioneer missionary. We have missionaries now that are sent out to take the gospel to the completely unreached places and people in the world. Like There's no existence of the gospel in these places. And they take the the gospel into those places and they proclaim Christ to them and they found churches. and, And that's exactly what Paul's heart was. He wanted to go into the places that uh, had not been reached with the gospel there and he wanted to proclaim the gospel among those people and see people come to uh, faith in Christ. He used as one of the verses as the founding of his uh, ministry from Isaiah 52. Those who have never been told of him will see. God had predicted this time that, that Although Israel for all those centuries was really the only nation on earth who had any real knowledge of the one true God, that time would change, uh, times would change, a new era would dawn in which the gospel would now go out to people who have never heard it. We're still in that era, by the way. And there is still the need for God to raise up people who sense a Uh, have a gifting and sense a call to take the gospel to places it's never been proclaimed before among really hard people groups who often won't want to hear it just as Paul encountered. And I know some of the, maybe some of the young people even in this room right now, God will call you into it. Now I know what you're thinking because I grew up in church. And I can remember sitting there listening to the pastor preach thinking, I would never want to do what he does. I'm thinking, that is so boring, man. I had my list of things I wanted to do, and a pastor was on the, not even the bottom of the list. It didn't make the list, which demonstrates God does have a sense of humor. (laughs) And if you're one of the young people in here right now, and you're thinking, I would never want to go to these places. And that kind of hard ministry, one day you might wake up finding yourself in that place, remembering this message, remembering you sitting here, not wanting to do it, and how God just loves to do things like that and then bring to your memory that you said you never would. We need people who will bring the gospel to places it's never been. We're so accustomed to the gospel, aren't we, as Americans? I mean, we're just saturated in it. We have so many resources and, and, and so many opportunities for worship and 
the gospel, in our Bibles, and yet there are people in this world right now, they are born into this world, they live their entire lives, and they die, and not once hear a clear explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have no idea of the gospel. That's still out there to this day, so the need still exists. You know, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Paul always thought of it as just this gracious mercy and gift of God that he had this great privilege to take the gospel to people who had never heard it. It was never reluctant. Paul was not a Jonah. Paul saw himself as obligated to bring the gospel to the nations. It was his joy. And sometimes when he knew he was going to get in trouble, you can see this in the book of Acts, his friends would say, please don't do this. And he'd say, how can you tell me not to do this? Whether I live or whether I die, for me to live is Christ. I'm going to take the gospel to the nations. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, this new song in heaven that his song says, Worthy are you, and they're singing it to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The cross of Christ, was for people from every tribe, tongue, nation, people, language, you name it. And he has a plan to save them. And so missionaries must be sent with this gospel message to those particular places. This was the model that the Apostle Paul put down for us. So Paul was a missionary and probably wrote Romans during his third missionary journey. Not sure if you're aware of this or not, but you can really follow the first three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. A large portion of the book of Acts, especially from Acts 13 on, is devoted to the missionary endeavors of the Apostle Paul as he brings the gospel to the unreached. And it was probably on that third missionary journey, so You'd be thinking, when you're reading Romans, think about Acts 18 to about Acts 20, which is about where we're at at that that time period. He's probably in Corinth at that time, and he's writing to uh, this church. And you you can see in chapter 15, verse 22, uh, why he did that. This is the reason why I have so often, says Paul, been hindered from coming to you, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. 
I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judah and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So he's writing to them probably from Corinth. He has a collection he's taken up on that third missionary journey from Gentile churches. And it was for specifically the poor uh, saints in Jerusalem, the poor Christians there who were suffering and in poverty. And he's collecting from these Gentile churches to bring those funds there. And he says, as soon as I'm done doing that, I want to head to Spain because the gospel hadn't reached there yet. And he wanted to go by way of Rome to this church he had never been to and he didn't plan. As a matter of fact, no one knows for sure who planted the church in Rome. But the church was there already and he wanted to go to the church. He wanted to meet them. He wanted to preach to them, spend a little time with them. And then notice, he wanted them to help him in his missionary journey to Spain. He expected them to do it. He was really uh, soliciting support of this church so that he could take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Romans then is largely a letter of introduction from a missionary, Paul, to a church he had never visited, a letter that lays out his credentials and his theology so that they would be willing to support him and feel obligated to do so. Especially as an apostle, they were obligated to support him. That's really the reason he's writing. I think that's the main reason that sparked this letter, preparing the way for him. And that teaches us a couple things, just briefly. First, supporting missionaries is biblical and has been since the beginning. And local churches have the privilege of participating through the giving of money to support missionaries and other gospel endeavors. Even think of those Gentile churches. He collected all that money for the poor to be sent to Jerusalem to Christians they had never met, but they knew they were Christians and needed help. That's missionary endeavors. Money used to support Paul in sending him up to Spain. The churches have the privilege in participating in in global missions largely through the giving of money. Isn't it interesting how God designed things so that it takes money to make disciples? It takes money to bring the gospel to the nations. And I'm sure God had many reasons for this, but not the least of which it gives, not everybody can be a goer, you have to have senders. Churches like us, not everybody here is gifted or or groomed or able to go somewhere and bring the gospel, but we're all able to help those who go, either through prayer, as Paul appeals to right here, or the giving of finances and and funds so that they can carry on that mission. So this is very biblical. And when missionaries come through and they ask for money, we shouldn't be despising that. They're supposed to be doing that. And I know having worked in missions for four years at, the, at that, it's always awkward to ask churches for money, but ultimately that's how missionaries do what they do. Now we can't support, not each church can support every missionary that comes through financially, but we don't even... We don't mind as a church, and I know many of you support some of our missionaries privately and probably other missionaries privately, and that's just fine. Our church can't take on every missionary that comes through, but sometimes God will raise up people in the congregation to support them, and I think that's wonderful. 
And second, notice this. Paul, as a missionary, preparing to meet these people, to him, his theology was very crucial. Sixteen chapters of it, as a matter of fact. Explaining his gospel so that they know he's right and they can support him in this. When missionaries are chosen, it's important to know what they believe, what they're going to be teaching, and what they are going to be proclaiming among the nations. So those are very important aspects to think about when it comes to missions. One of the main ideas we should take from Romans is that our theology matters, our doctrine matters, and the gospel is intricate and detailed and has applications that are very important. We see Paul filling this letter with that. Now, as promised, let me just briefly, just for a few minutes, a couple chapters at a time, give you an overview of this letter, and then maybe I would suggest you take the time this week to read it through in one setting, keeping in mind that it is a letter. I did that this morning, as a matter of fact, just in the office, and it took me probably 20 minutes or so. And you can read it from start to finish in one sitting, and you'll make connections if you do that. I would suggest you do that a number of times in the upcoming weeks, getting a grasp of it. But in chapters 1 through 3, here Paul lays out the need we have for Jesus. Before he gets into the good news of the gospel, he gets into the bad news about us. That apart from Christ, you and I are in real trouble with God. And ultimately, we are under, verse 18, his wrath. That's a hard word to think about. That's a hard concept to think about, especially when you know you're a sinner. It's the wrath of God against sinners. And Paul does an excellent job. You can think of these first few chapters as a courtroom scene, and he's the prosecuting attorney, and he's just laying out his case against Jews and Gentiles, confining everyone in chapter 3 under sin. He says... What shall we say? Chapter 3, verse 9. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are, and get used to this phrase, under sin. We're under sin, as it is written, and he goes on quoting about our unrighteousness, setting that need for verse 21. And by the time you get to verse 21 in chapter 3, you have nothing to reply to God. I love this in verse 19 of chapter 3. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, when you stand before God to give an account, you have nothing that you can reply to Him. If He asks for an explanation of who you are, there's nothing you can reply to Him. You are under sin. You're guilty as charged. And then he explains, of course, the gloriousness of the gospel in verses 21 through 26 that God put forth his son, we read it this morning, as a propitiation for our sins, that wrath-absorbing sacrifice so that when we place our faith in Jesus, we can be saved. Chapters 4 and 5, Paul will explain that all of this righteousness that we need that comes from God, the forgiveness we need, the eternal life comes through faith. Faith alone, apart from works. That's the idea. And so in chapters 4 and 5, he'll establish the fact that this is how it's always been. People have always been saved by faith alone. He'll use Abraham as the prime example that 
Listen, some people will say, well, you know, in the Old Testament of our Bibles, you know, people were saved by keeping the law and doing the sacrifices, and uh, that's how they were saved. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Nobody's ever been saved by keeping the law. Look at even Abraham was justified. He was declared righteous before 400 years before the law had even been established. He was justified by faith alone in Christ alone. How exciting it must have been for Paul after being saved to re-examine the Old Testament in light of the gospel, which is how it always should be read. Before he was reading it as a Pharisee, of course, and how he can gain his right standing before God. And now to look back and look at it again and see, oh, Abraham was justified by faith, just like me. And we're all children of Abraham by faith. It had to be a very exciting time for all of these uh, New Testament people to come to these understandings. In chapter 6, the question always comes up, well, if, if we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, does that mean that I can live any way I want? Can I just continue in sin? Or if we're saved by grace alone, should I keep sinning so that you know, grace can look more like grace and look really good? And Paul says that's not the gospel at all. He explains that we have died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. Remember we looked at this a couple weeks ago? That we too, chapter 6 verse 4, might walk in the newness of life. That we are no longer, as he explains in chapter 6, slaves to sin like we were. Now we can be slaves of God in righteousness. So you learn in the first part that the penalty of your sins has been paid for in Christ, but also the power of sin in your life, friends, has been broken. Sin will, verse 14 of chapter 6, no longer have dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace. So in other words, live as people under grace, free from sin and free to obey God now in righteousness. It's a very important passage, but then I love what he does in chapter 7. He goes right on in chapter 7 to show that even though the penalty for sin has been paid for and the power of sin has been broken, we still have the presence of sin in our lives. I love this passage in chapter 7 when he describes his own wrestling on a daily basis with his indwelling sin. He says, I do not understand, verse 15, my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Have you ever experienced that in your Christian life? I mean, largely, in, we're taught chapter 6 in our beginning of discipleship that, hey, you've got to live for God now, and you've got to do what's right now, and you've got to be obedient now. And Christians, we can start out like that in the beginning, all gone home and say, yeah, I, yeah, this is great. And it doesn't take long to realize, wait a minute, something weird is happening here. 
I have the desire to do what's right. I mean, I genuinely do. And I, I delight in God's word and I see it and I want to do what's right. But I don't find the ability to carry that out. As a matter of fact, sometimes I do the very thing I hate. Does that resonate with anyone in here? I hope it does. That should be very encouraging that you're not alone. The Apostle Paul went way before you in this. We can let him disciple us through it. And that's what leads us to chapter 8, which is the last chapter we'll review, I think, this morning. Chapter 8, which explains life in the Holy Spirit. And the key to winning and conquering your indwelling sin and living a righteous life doesn't come from you, it comes from the Spirit's power in you. So that now because of the Spirit, you can walk according to the Spirit and you have the power to put to death those, those evil desires within you and in an increasing level throughout your Christian life, you learn then by the Spirit to obey God and say no to sin. God didn't tell us now to be righteous and live righteous as Christians and leave us powerless to do so. He has given us the provision of His Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit with us. And what's beautiful in chapter 8, as you are, friends, as you, if you are like me, I am sure that you uh, spend many a day in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, what is, what is happening with me? It is encouraging to know that when you get to chapter 8, do you know what it begins with? It begins with no condemnation. I love this. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And to chapter 7, you're wrestling with your indwelling sin. What does is, what is a person who's wrestling with their indwelling sin need to hear? Do better. Try harder. Get your act together. Why can't you just pull it together? Now, I think what Paul understands is the first thing they need to hear is this. Now, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. What Christ was doing was being condemned for your sin so that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what we're going to find throughout Romans is that your salvation, friends, is all from God, from beginning to end, that God has done for you what you could not, cannot, will not do for yourself, so that He can say to you, there's no condemnation to you now, my child. My son, my daughter in Christ. It's not possible for a Christian to enter into condemnation. That's how he starts it. And you know what's so cool? is He ends this chapter with the doctrine of no separation. Not only can there be no condemnation, but there can be no separation between you and God's love for you in Christ. When he has set his eternal love on his children, nothing can separate you from that love. Nothing that happens to you, no situation you find yourself in, no person can separate you from the love of God. You can't even separate yourself from the love of God in Christ that he has for you. 
What shall we say, he says, to these things? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Can you see how the true gospel is emboldening? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure of this, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, friends, is really good news, isn't it? What the gospel, a true understanding of the gospel teaches you is that in Christ you are safe and sound. You are secure. You are kept. There's no way out of this thing. People ask me sometimes, can we lose our salvation? I don't know. What did you just read right here in Romans 8? How can you lose the love of Christ, if nothing can separate you from it. If God says the promise, you're in Christ, no condemnation to you. How could you ever be condemned then? I would say that it is literally impossible. What Paul wants you to understand in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he has done everything for us necessary to ensure that one day you will be in His presence, in glory, forever. All by grace. All through faith in Christ alone. Two friends, the glory of God alone. It's a wonderful gospel. And I look forward to unfolding it week upon week with you. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Every week we should become more aware of how wonderful He is and how much we need Him, depend upon Him. Thank You for righteousness. Thank You for declaring us righteous in Jesus. Thank You for teaching us about it. And I pray that everyone in here now would be able to treasure this week the good news of Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen.